Hello, welcome to season three, episode two of the LGO Playbook Podcast. I'm Stephen Windorf, and I'm excited and honored to have Josh Jensen, LGO Class of 2016 with me today. Josh Jensen is the co-founder and CEO of Inspectify. As a mechanical engineer by training, Josh started his career at Caterpillar, where he worked in research designing new powertrains for Caterpillar equipment. During his time at LGO, he became more involved in the tech startup space, launching his first company, FuelDrop, while attending MIT. Afterwards, he moved to Seattle, where he led operations for multiple VC-backed tech startups. He started a second company, Inspectify, in 2019, and has raised capital from Y Combinator and founders and executives of multiple real estate technology companies, including Zillow, Open Door, and Compass. He lives in West Seattle with his wife, Mary, fellow LGO alum, class of 2012, their two daughters, Arabella and Theodosa, and their husky pup, Luna. Everyone, please welcome Josh. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So just to get kicked off, it seems like you have a lot going on in your life. Um, did you ever think you uh, would be where you are now or doing what you're doing now? <laughs> you know, it's funny. I um, I knew directionally that, so I grew up in Iowa. Um, I knew I wanted to get out of Iowa and, and, and see more things, but thinking we would be in Seattle with two kids and running my own company. No, absolutely. And obviously hindsight's twenty twenty, but you just kind of take what life throws at you and do what you can with it. So you have a background in engineering, having worked for Caterpillar before and then going into the tech space. Uh, what really attracted you to engineering both early on and then going to Caterpillar from that? I grew up in a small town in, in Southwest Iowa. I grew up on a farm. You know, it's funny when I was growing up and going through high school, I actually was planning on being a farmer. I was planning on not actually going to college, stick around the family farm and work the land, as they say. But my grandfather told me I was an idiot and told me I had to go to school. Working on the farm, I was always taking things apart and putting things back together. And, and I think that naturally kind of pushed me towards engineering. And, you know, I probably wasn't the most uh, diligent student in high school, but I was naturally good at math. So when you combine those two things together, it just made sense that, uh, you know, engineering was probably the right track for me. So that's what kind of steered me in that direction. Gotcha. So was it this farm background that also kind of pushed you towards Caterpillar as well? And uh, <laughs> and how exactly did that work after coming out of undergrad? Growing up, I was always working on diesel engines on, on tractors. I will say we were a green household. It was all John Deere. Um, I definitely got a lot of flack from the family going to <laughs> Caterpillar, not going to, to John Deere. But no, I, I would definitely say there was some direction of, of wanting to work in heavy equipment and being a mechanical engineer. Um, but I also say that during my time, in undergrad, you know, in addition to, to my engineering coursework, I was quite active with other clubs on campus. Uh, I was in a fraternity and developed a lot of soft skills and realized that I enjoyed leading and, and doing more than just engineering. And I think that's part of what attracted me to Caterpillar was at the time was an organization of 70,000 plus folks that would offer a, a breadth of opportunities to, to grow beyond just designing diesel engines. I think that was one of the major motivations um, for me to go to Caterpillar beyond the fact that, you know, it's a mechanical engineer's dream job to work on big time trucks and, and diesel engines. Yeah, I've definitely heard that they have some very impressive things and uh, put some on some impressive shows for uh, new hires and if you go there to visit. So hopefully post-COVID, some LGOs will get to do that here pretty soon. I miss it some days that you know I'm, I'm building software now, now building massive machines that move the earth. They make some pretty cool stuff. So was it at Caterpillar also where you uh, met your wife who was an LGO as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, with, with Caterpillar being a partner company, I actually had heard of LGO before I met Mary. So Dan Shockley, who was one of the founding members of the whole LGO Caterpillar partnership, had mentioned it to me. And then Mary's class had, I think it was actually the first year that Caterpillar was a partner and they hired a ton. I 
I think there were six to eight of Mary's classmates all went to Caterpillar oh, wow. and they all came to Peoria, Illinois, which is not that big of a town. So I met Mary and met all of her friends and they kept telling me about how cool this program is. It was LGO that connected Mary and I uh, together. Nice, nice. And then uh, did she eventually uh, convince you to <laughs> go to LGO at some point in time? Is that how it worked? It's funny. I mean, she obviously sold me on the program and I was looking at a couple different business schools, but when Don made the call, it was a no brainer that we were going there. But it's funny, Mary hates Boston. She had lived there for a handful of years before LGO and she was not excited about the idea of going back to Boston. And we've been dating for about a year and a half at that point and we had gotten engaged, but we had this spoken agreement that if we were going to go back to Boston, that the next move was her call. So going out of LGO, I had no say. She got to pick what city we moved to. So I think that is is very stereotypical in our careers. Is it's it's very much a give and take, and you kind of have to balance it. She was obviously very excited for me to go to LGO, but there was some some cringing of going back to going back to Boston. But we made it work. Yeah, definitely. What kind of were your highlights of LGO when you were there? And what did you really learn from the experience? Yeah, I mean, for me, the reason why I wanted to go to business school and and only to LGO is, you know, it's kind of led me to where I am today. I wanted to use it as an opportunity to actually get into something outside of big company, into starting either my own company or working more in the tech space. It's ironic when I was deciding between going to business school, I also had an offer to go work at Tesla, which at that point, I wouldn't have been that bad of an idea. Uh, I still think I made the better decision, but it was very much where my mindset was. I wanted to be in a more fast-paced environment, but also had these aspirations of building something with my own hands and building something of my own that would be mine and not uh, somebody else's, if that doesn't sound too selfish. So, you know, I think going into LGO, that was one of my primary objectives was to immerse myself fully into the startup, the entrepreneurship ecosystem that MIT provides through the trust center and and obviously Bill Allett and everything that, that he does. And I think, you know, both through the coursework, but also starting my own company while going to LGO, that was definitely one of the key moments of, of my time there because it kind of set the tra- trajectory of what I was going to do after LGO. And then I think the, uh, the, the second part kind of stems from my upbringing, right? So I grew up in a small town, you know, spent 22 years of my life in one state, moved to Illinois, which wasn't that far away for another four years. So, you know, most of my life had been within a 800 mile radius, right? And for me, I wanted to use the business school and LGO as a way to give me a new perspective and get to broaden my view on not only just industry in the world, um, but culturals and different backgrounds and how different people think and how they react both in, in, in our world, but also in, in the workforce. So a large part of that was taking advantage of the action learning that MIT provides, obviously with plant track, international plant track. And then my internship at uh, LGO was actually, I had the opportunity to, to work in Singapore for nine months. So I lived in Singapore for nine months with my wife, which was an incredible opportunity and did so working on a pretty interesting project that Amgen was sponsoring. So it was an awesome opportunity to not only experience, but actually live it um, for nine months. And then I think the last high point, and this was, I, I think, surprising how how impactful this has been, but the relationships you make with the MBA class, but I'd say much more with the LGO class. You know, some of my best friends were in our class. We had the fortunate um, opportunity that a fair amount of my class actually went to Seattle after LGO. So it was just kind of this extension of LGO just in 
you know, grayer weather, which was <laughs> an awesome, awesome way to kind of start a new life in Seattle. You had this like existing network, this existing family that came with you. And, you know, even if we weren't in the same city of this, I still talked to a lot of my LGO classmates on a monthly basis um, that live all across the world. So that network and that sense of family you get from the class definitely uh, was a huge takeaway for me uh, from LGO. You mentioned the uh, trust center. It seemed like that might have been a formative experience for you and being able to leverage those resources and kind of build off of that to um, develop, I guess, a baseline skills for a lot of what you do that's important now in your career. Could you maybe elaborate more on your experience with the trust center and also with uh, your company fuel drop? Yeah. So my, um, my first semester, fall semester, I took basically the, the um, intro to entrepreneurship. I forgot the name of the class at Bill Allett teaches. And, and really the, the core of the class is you you create a company. You you're, you go through his 20 some steps of, of entrepreneurship and you start a company and test it through those different steps. The cool thing about it is there is actually LGOs in the class. So I started a company field drop with another LGO, a class below me, Nate McMullen. And we use this class environment as a way to test the different ways to start a company and what different things you should be doing. And if, you know, if, if MIT was into entrepreneurship, Bill Allett, coin the way to do it in very much an engineer's way. It was like the step-by-step approach. It wasn't this, you know, more nebulous art form that a lot of folks think about when they're starting a company. And it was great because, you know, some of it was useful, some of it wasn't very useful, but it gave you the initial framework to say, hey, if you want to start something from nothing, like here's here's a structure, here's an approach to, to it wouldn't say it's the be all end all, but it's a, it's a set of tools that you can start to apply to understand how to quantify what the market size is, how to quantify, you know, what's the, the main pain point you're trying to solve. And the cool thing about how the trust center had it set up, and I'm assuming it's still this way, is Bill's classes are designed to take it from that initial first class where you built, start building your company, and you can start taking other classes that allow you to keep taking that company if you're actually interested in doing it to, to further levels. And really the capstone, and, and I won't say it on the podcast, but it was at the time called GSD, get stuff done, except it wasn't the word stuff. And that was really the capstone for the, the trust center is it was almost like an independent study. You met once a week for three to four hours with founders and it was just really a, a working session, right? And, and most of your homework was just building the business, right? Set a goal and, and go from $100 in revenue to $500 revenue. Do it in a week, come back and tell us how it went, right? So it's funny how similar that type of structure is to what we went through to fast forward to going through Y Combinators. It's actually very, very similar. And given you know how successful YC is, it shows that that type of methodology that MIT applies with the Trust Center and what Bill all that does is, is very um, impactful for folks trying to get into the, the TARP space. It's a good foundation to, to get you started. Thanks for that context. I want to ask one question going back a little bit, I guess. Uh, how many years of work experience did you have prior to LGO? And how was that returning back to school? <laughs> what, what, was, what was your experience getting back kind of into the grind of daily classes and everything? Or do you see it as just more time to kind of explore and do a startup? Let's see, I graduated undergrad in 2010, and then I started LGO in, in 2014. So it's about four years, which is about around the average, usually, uh, mm -hmm. at least it was for, for our class. You're in a different mindset as an individual going to graduate school than you were at the beginning of undergrad. I'm a firm believer in undergrad, like, you learn how to learn. And that's really like, the takeaway. Like, yeah, you can learn classes on fluid dynamics, blah, blah, blah. But really, like you're teaching yourself how to best learn the content you're being presented with. And since you already have a head start, you've already perfected that through undergrad. I felt like graduate school was a thousand times easier than undergrad because you already have this this methodology in terms of 
one, you know, hopefully if you're getting an LGO, you have decent time management skills. You know how to, to manage your workload. You know how to best prioritize what you need to get done. And, you know, for me, it wasn't a huge uh, challenge to kind of jump in. Um, it was almost refreshing to get away from endless meetings and monotony that you kind of get in corporate America and into back of this more romantic lifestyle of a student. It was very refreshing and somewhat easy. Obviously, the challenge, and this isn't unique to, to me, I think this is every business student in LGO goes to this, is just taking advantage of as much as you can, right? You only have so many hours in a week. So how do you cram it all in? How do you prioritize what you want to be involved with? Because you only have two years. You, only, you have a pretty finite amount of time to make the most of it. And you have to be selective. You have to choose what you're not going to do just as much as you have to choose what you want to do because you only have so much time. Absolutely. I, I know I've uh, ran into some of those trade-offs and had to, had to make those decisions as well, just having been in LGO for less than two semesters with the summer. After LGO, it seemed like you didn't really necessarily go the traditional route of going to work for a partner company or going into consulting or going into one of the kind of main tracks, you decided to do something different. Could you explain that experience and why you decided to do that? And was it a function of just uh, Mary wanting to be in Seattle and choosing to be there instead of uh, somewhere else? Yeah, actually, it's a combination of all of it. It's funny, when I was going through the recruiting process, I had the fortunate luck that I had not a lot of options, but you know, a good choice of options of different opportunities. The ironic part of it is the one city I didn't have an opportunity was was Seattle. I had jobs all across the country. I had offers in different countries, and Seattle was the one spot I didn't have a job, which was really shitty luck for me, to be honest. Um, and and Mary, you know, she found her dream job. She got a head of ops working for REI up in Seattle, and like obviously, I told you before, we had this kind of spoken agreement that she had the trump card. Which which is probably not the best word to use in, in today's age right now. But, you know, so she said Seattle and, and we did it. So I, I moved to Seattle without a job. I turned down all the other job offers I had and moved to Seattle because that's what I promised Mary. And I like to say, like, I'm the, I'm the good husband and I, I did the right thing, but she wasn't going to let me get away with it, right? <laughs> so, uh, so we moved to Seattle and I spent a month or two trying to think what I wanted to do. And I'll kind of start a, a pretty common theme in my life, which was I wanted to start a company, right? So it's like I, I, I did this whole thing at, at uh, MIT. I loved what I learned at the Trust Center. And I wanted to, to start my own company. And, and right when I was about ready to dive in, we found out we were going to have our, our firstborn, um, Arabella. And, you know, even though I didn't really need to work because Mary had a good job, I don't know if it's like med, my Midwestern values, but I felt like I had to provide. I had to have a job. I had to put money on the table, even though Mary would have been fine with me just going to start an own company. So <laughs> by consciously or subconsciously, I went and tried to find a job in Seattle. And and while it's probably not the traditional path in the sense of I didn't go work for a partner company or go to management consulting, I will say that I basically was doing what a lot of my classmates were doing just at a much smaller company, right? So I went, my first job was working for uh, early stage VC-backed food delivery company in Seattle called Peach. And I was head of operations, you know, did a lot of things that you would do at a partner company, just in a much different environment, a much less defined environment. And, you know, there's there's good things and bad things about doing operations in an early stage company. The, the good thing is the bar is super low. It's really easy to look good doing operations at an early stage company because they have no idea what they're doing. So if you just come in and do some really basic stuff, you look like you're a rock star. 
but the challenge is you don't you don't look for a lot a rock star very long because things are constantly changing and constantly you know you might get one process in place and the ceo is like oh we're doing a new business now so we're going to pivot away from that so it's really hard to get a lot of stability and structure in place which i think made me better as an operator because you had to learn how to quickly put stuff in place and but have it be flexible enough to to be able to adjust to the dynamic environment that, that an early stage company would have so Unorthodox or not, I still feel like running operations for an early stage company is perfect for an LGO. I, I would recommend it to anybody coming out of the school. I mean, obviously go work for a partner company, I should say that, but working at an early stage company as an LGO is phenomenal because you have complete autonomy, you're running the ship, you've got a, a large team, you get a ton of responsibility very, very quickly. And it puts you in this very high stress environment where you have to be able to adjust and do things very, very quickly, which I think really helps you out in the long term. When you were looking for that job, was it the uh, food delivery industry in particular that attracted you to it? Or was it the startup environment? Or was it just knowing that somebody from LGO or from MIT who kind of uh, was able to make the introduction for you? Just a little bit curious. I like to tell you that I had this very methodical, oh, this is why I needed a job, right? Like I, I, I turned down every damn offer I had and like my, my wife didn't want me like sitting around doing nothing all day. So I needed a job. So I, I found this job. I applied. They actually had an offer out to somebody else, but they're like, oh, this guy's better. So the classic startup, they like canceled that offer and gave me an offer. Um, <laughs> and I went and worked there. If I had to say there was one reason I found it, what I was most interested in was actually who I was be working for. It wasn't like I was working for some crazy like Silicon Value CEO. They brought in a very established executive as a CEO who had run operations for Amazon and Microsoft and had you know, 30, 40 years of experience. So I was like, well, this is cool. I'll have a ton of autonomy to be able to run my own ship. But I have this very seasoned leader that knows how to run, run a business that I can learn so much from that even if it's a year and the company blows up, I will learn so much in that one year that I'll be, I'll be better off for it. So I don't think it was industry. I actually was pretty bored. Like the idea of like delivering food wasn't super exciting to me, but the opportunity of who I was working for and the, the level of responsibility I'd have right out of LGO was, was really what excited me the most about the opportunity. So what was it about LGO that you were able to leverage? I mean, it's leaders for global operations and you're going to be the head of operations for a food delivery company, but was there something in particular that really helped you when there was a point in time during your career, during your time at Peach that you could really leverage from the LGO program? I mean, lots of different opportunities. I would say if I had to articulate a couple LGO, um, and I think unique to the, the Sloan program, you take a lot of classes on leadership and LGO classmates might have their opinion on the leadership classes if they're, they're good or bad, but I, I think they're actually fantastic because even if you don't feel like you're accomplishing a lot, you're getting, you're getting perspective, which I think the more perspective you have, the more you understand how to relate to people, the better you can be as a leader. It's probably the thing I'm most proud of, of my time at Peach was the team that we built. You know, I started out with two direct reports or three direct reports and an eight person org. And I left with 70 people and then five wow. direct reports. And our team had an amazing culture. Everybody loved being there. It was just, it was such a fun place to work compared to anywhere else I'd, I'd ever been. And a lot of that was just from, you know, learning how to best manage the people I was working for, but also, you know, how to set a good example for folks that don't directly report for me as well. Qualitatively, I think the leadership lessons and, and classes and just the experience of LGO were very pivotal in terms of how I was able to build trust and grow that team. But then quantitatively, um, and this is where I really got to geek out, is the Peach is food delivery, right? But what makes Peach different from like a DoorDash or a, a Grubhub is 
those types of models are point to point, right? You go on the app, you order a pad thai, 30 minutes later, you get a pad thai. We were doing bulk delivery, right? So we would send out 180,000 text messages every morning to a ton of business parks in multiple cities across the US. People would respond back with ABC. We offered three different meal types, meat, veg, and light. And you picked one of these three options, and then we would aggregate all that and deliver hundreds of meals at a time. So we had super efficient. We were actually, I think at the time, the only profitable food delivery company on the planet, on the planet um, is our delivery costs were sub a dollar compared to, you know, wow. if you go to Grubhub, you're paying six, seven dollars. We were able to do a lot of cool things using optimization. When you think about the problem, you're delivering a, a very complex node network and delivering meals to all these different office buildings. And by doing some pretty cool optimization, we were able to shave off real dollars and, and do it week over week, right? Every week we'd reroute the same routes and I, I would refine the optimization model with our CTO and we'd actually like save thousands and thousands of dollars in delivery costs every week. And then we even went one step further where we built these advanced algorithms and optimization models that would identify what types of food work better for the different office buildings, right? So this office building might actually like Thai better than, than Indian, right? And we would identify how those converted based off the day of the week, where they're being located, and we'd actually get more orders all through optimization. And it was a really cool opportunity to apply, you know, our, you know, your classic optimization class that you, system dynamics that you, you take to be able to have real world impact very quickly. It wasn't some project that would take months. You literally did it and the next day you saved money or you made more money. So it was really cool opportunity to apply the quant that you learn at MIT uh, pretty quickly. I know several people in LGO now who would be very interested in an opportunity like that afterwards. So you, you touched on leadership before that. Can you talk about how you grew the team from just a small team into a larger team and how you picked the right people to bring in and then empowered other people to bring in the right people and just developed that culture um, within that organization that you had from very small to over, you know, I think eight people is what you said to over 60. You know, the, the big thing, and, and I, this isn't profoundly my idea, so I, I stole this from other people, but develop the people you have, invest energy in the people you have. As I mentioned, I started with three direct reports, one of which everybody at the company was telling me I should fire, that he was awful, worst employee of the company, just, just find a way to get rid of him, right? And his job was basically managing our driver pipeline to have enough drivers to make the, the food be delivered. And after the first week, I realized that the reason why he wasn't doing his job is because every day he'd have to go out and do deliveries because we had this shortage, right? So this manager that's his job is to hire is spending half of his time delivering food. So I initially said, no, you're done. You're not delivering food. You're solving this problem. I'll deliver the food, but your job is to hire people and figure that out. And he turned out to be by far one of the best employees I've ever, ever had. Be able to identify blockers for your team, identify what they're, what they're missing, both if it's something very tactful, like they're wasting four hours a day delivering food to a skill set gap that they need. You know, one thing I was very adamant on for our entire team, I don't, I don't care if you're a manager or your customer service, if you wanted to have more analytical chops, if you wanted to actually be able to solve a problem through data, we would give you the training. And it, even if it was me sitting down showing you how to write a SQL query so you could pull the data to do the analysis, I would invest that time because what I don't want to do is have my customer service reps identify there's a problem, but they don't, they don't know how to pull the data to solve it. They have to write a request to the tech team to, to pull that data. We were very intentional investing in the team. And that's a very specific example, but you know, making sure that all my managers knew how to do SQL cores and pull the data to be able to solve the problems and not have to rely on another resource to solve our own problem. It was very critical in developing the team we had, but it also like it works both ways. It's, it's capitalistic in the sense that 
I'm going to get more out of that employee, right? Because they have more skill sets, but it's also socialistic because they're going to get more of that value, right? They're, they're learning more skill sets than they did before they joined the company. And now they're more employable. And it's my job as, as a leader, as a manager to keep them engaged. So they stay And this idea of like, you don't want to give too much to your employees because they're just going to leave and go somewhere else is foolish. If you keep them happy, if you keep them busy, they're going to stick around. They're going to be much more impactful. So that allowed us to have a very high morale. We became the org that people wanted to work for. They wanted to come in operations, which usually isn't the case in, in an early stage startup. I joke that operations at an early stage startup is a lot like being an offensive lineman. And I was an offensive lineman, so I can relate, which is if you do your job and you do your job well, you never get any press. It's like, that's just your job, but you miss one block and you are the worst person on the team, right? So all it takes is one screw up and the ops is like the worst team on the planet, even though you just delivered 99% quality for the last six months. We made ops fun, which is is hard in a startup. So we had a lot of people that wanted to come work in our org. And then just naturally, as we built that culture and I was able to have my managers be more impactful, it allowed me to be more leveraged so I could take on more responsibility. So a lot of the org growth came from just adding more departments within my, my responsibility because I had more bandwidth because it's, I'm trying to remember the case study, if you guys did it, where it's about the manager that does basically does nothing, just gives everything to his employees and they do everything. And not to say that's who I was doing, but I was becoming much more leveraged so I could handle you know, having more managers reporting to me, which allowed me to grow my org. I've heard ops is usually the pain point in, in startups and that, yeah, it's always where the fires tend to be. So it seemed like you had that organization running on all cylinders and then you decided to make a jump to somewhere else. What was the thought process behind that when you, when you made your next kind of career move? Like what happened after LGO, I kept getting the itch that I wanted to start my own company. I wanted to to go and do my own thing. I was having, I was actually having a lot of fun at Peach. It was, like I said, probably one of the best work environments I've ever been working at. But in the day, like it was somebody else's baby. I was, mm-hmm. I was busting my butt to to grow the founder's business. And if you're fulfilled, that's usually enough. But you know, I, I was like, well, why not just go do something my own? I, I have this itch. I feel like I've done this before. I should be able to go start my own company. So I did. So I left Peach and I had this idea, which is all it was at the time to do something in the home inspection space. And then as what has happened in the past, we find out that we're having another kid. And I do the same stupid behavior, which is I need a job. I need to provide for my family. And ironically, that same employee that I told you that they want me to fire, he actually sent me to the CEO at Fly Homes. He's like, you should talk to Josh. He's a great guy. He's building this really cool thing in the inspection space. And the CEO is like, oh, you should just come work for me. Like give you tons of money, like tons of responsibility, make you, you know, VP of ops. So it was a bump in title, more team, more responsibility, more pay. And I was like, all right, well, I've got a kid coming. I'll take the easy path, right? I'll just go do this. Turned out case that was that wasn't the case. I've never worked more in my life than I did at Fly Homes. I was doing 80 hour weeks and I was just crazy swamped. And it was the wrong decision on many fronts, the right decision on some fronts. It was the same type of you know decision making where you know, I had this called subconscious decision that I, I had to have a normal job, even though again, my wife had a very good career at REI. We did not need me to bring on money to the table compared to other situations. So that was, you know, the initial reason to go going to Fly Homes. As we can probably talk, it, it was it was actually very instrumental in where we are today with Inspectify was from that experience. So I look back at it as the right decision, but at the time and, and while I was there, I didn't feel that way at all. So, <laughs> <laughs> so it seems like you uh, had this itch for real estate for a while, or to be in the you know inspection and uh, in real estate. What really drew you to that, or what made you really excited about real estate and still does to this day? It comes back to my upbringing on the farm. I love working with my hands. And that's why I got into engineering. And I bought my first house right when I went to Caterpillar when I was 
I think it was 23 when I bought my first house and it was kind of a fixer upper. And I immediately went into, I painted it. I did the drywall. I did the floor and all this work myself. And I found it almost therapeutic. It wasn't really a job. It wasn't even a hobby as a way to like relieve stress. It was just something I could do after work and put my headphones on and do wiring or, or, or do sheetrock, whatever it might be. And, you know, being an engineer, being somebody that grew up on a farm, I love the instant gratification you get from your work, right? Like you put a new kitchen, you see it, the results of it very, very quickly, right? And it kind of got the bug for real estate. And then I met Mary who similarly had the same type of bug. She actually had bought and sold much more property than I did when we met. She had currently had owned three properties when we met. So she was more of a real estate tycoon than I was. <laughs> you know, it's part of what makes us work. You know, like we, we have our fulfilling jobs that we do, but we have this real estate hustle on the side where, you know, this year we'll probably do four transactions, buy and sell four different properties. And it's just something that, you know, people ask, like, how do you have the time? Like you've got kids, you got these jobs and there's only so much time. So instead of me playing golf, which my friend Chris would tell me I should play more golf, I just <laughs> work on houses and buy houses. So, you know, it's, it, it's just another hobby that we have and it's something that's part of our lives. And we kind of see it as a little bit of a family business and something that even though we keep telling ourselves, we should probably dial back, not be so stressed. We, we love it so much that we just keep bringing it on. So say la vie, it's, it's our lives. That's one thing that I really uh, find admirable about you and really respect about you is this, your ability to manage your time and prioritize everything in your life. How, how do you kind of balance that out and decide what's important and what's not? I know you hit on it before when you're in LGO about choosing the right things to do and the right things to invest your time in. What's your thought process around that? And honestly, like if you could give me some tips, that'd be great. <laughs> I think this applies in, in a lot of different parts of life and, and it applies in real estate and in the workforce and everything, but learn when to outsource, when to say this isn't worth me doing this specifically. I'm mean, not saying that you should you know, dump it on an employee, but simple things like my wife and I hate cleaning. We despise keeping our house clean. We hate it. And we both have decent paying jobs. So once every two weeks, somebody comes and helps us clean up the house. It might seem like it's it's a bit of a privilege, but when we think about it, it allows us to focus that energy on real estate and we make money doing real estate. So it covers the cost, right? And the same thing can be applied to what we do in real estate. When we first started, we had this very painful way to do real estate, but it was lucrative in the sense that we would buy a house. It would be the place we live, but we would fix it up while we lived there. And then after two years, we'd move and sell it and avoid capital gains because it was our primary residence for two years. So we would do this every two years. We did this three times in Seattle. We'd buy a house, we flip it, move to the next one. So every two years, we're moving to a new house, which is cool. You you make a lot of money doing it, but it's a pain in the ass because you're constantly moving. You're constantly living in a, in a life of construction and dust and never in a, in a stable house. And now we've moved more towards a world where we'll, we'll buy a house. We won't actually live in it. We have a crew of folks that will go in and do the renovations. We've got you know, an agent that we use that handles all the listings. So we outsource a lot of it. And while our money per transaction has probably gone down, we're far more leveraged. We can do more transactions and we can have a family and do everything else, right? So there's only so many hours you have in your day. So how can you be better leveraged with those hours, right? And that could be done through efficiency gains. It could be done through leverage to other folks, just being more prioritized in what you're doing. So not sure if there's any secret sauce in any of that, but uh, that's kind of how we think about it in terms of kind of how we manage it all. So definitely helps. I feel like I should take a little bit more of that to heart or be a little bit more intentional about some of the stuff I do because I feel like there's never enough hours in the day. Uh, <laughs> you can find a way to get more hours in the day. I'd love to squeeze it, love to squeeze know it out, it. right? Yeah. <laughs> squeeze out as much time as possible. Um, exactly. So what was your startup journey like with Inspectify? How did you get funding for it and kind of go through that process as you were transitioning away from your, your other job? 
I, I mentioned briefly that my time at Fly Home is a bit tumultuous. I was working long hours and I'd gotten to a point where I felt like as an individual, I, I wasn't actually learning anything. I wasn't actually progressing as a professional and realized that you know, I was kind of at a pivot in a career. I was like, either I want to go do my own thing and have complete control over my destiny. And, and if it fails, at least I know it's on me and not because I had to follow a direction of somebody I didn't, I didn't believe in the direction they're going. Or I was going to go work for a bigger company. I actually intentionally thought maybe I should go work for either a later stage startup or a bigger company and actually work for a seasoned leader like I've done at Peach because there's just so much more I can get out of it. Maybe I'm just not ready to start that company. And fortunately for me, I decided on the on the former, decided to start Inspectify. The genesis of it came from, you know, initially a lot of my consumer experiences, buying houses, going through the inspection process. I'd say that with most startups and most founders, there's usually a story they tell you on the whole idea. And we're no different. My wife and I were buying a house in Somerville, actually, when we were going to school at MIT. So we bought a house, a small little cottage house in Somerville, Mass. And it was the first house we bought together. We used an agent we found online. And as what happens with most real estate transactions, the agent recommended an inspector and say, this is my friend, solid inspector, use this guy. And the inspector shows up and he's from Saudi. So he has a thick Boston accent and, and he's finishing up. And I was like, well, what'd you think of the roof? And he's like, oh, I, I didn't bring a ladder. I, I didn't check the roof. And I was like, what? You've got one job, one job, check the roof. And, and he's like, I didn't bring a ladder. So he pulled up binoculars and he kind of looked at the roof and I came to realize this is just how real estate happens. Like it's all relationship based. And sometimes that's for the good. And a lot of times it's not. A lot of times it means there's this curtain over the consumer's eyes when they're going through the transaction. So, you know, Inspectify's initial premise was, can we, can we drive more change in the inspection space, but ultimately through the entire real estate transaction and make it easier for consumers to get through this buying process. But the long-term view and why we think this will be a billion dollar company is we see home inspections as our wedge into home ownership in the sense that with every inspection, we're acquiring a customer at the beginning of their journey of owning a home, but we're also acquiring the single most comprehensive data set that exists on the home. And this kind of goes back to my MIT days in the sense that if I have this data, there's so much I can do with it, right? Both in terms of a B2B play, in terms of helping businesses with the data, but also from a consumer perspective to help them with the repairs, with insurance, with warranty, all the different things they have to do with their home. So, you know, I had this idea that I was like, okay, this seems like it has some legs. I, you know, I floated by a couple of my friends and started working on this space. And typically how people start companies in the startup space is you do what they call friends and family, right? So you go out to your friends, you go to the family and say, hey, I'm going to raise a couple hundred thousand dollars so I can pay myself to try to figure this out, try to figure out if there's any real opportunity here. And for me, good or bad, since Mary had a full-time job, we had real estate investment that was bringing in money from investments, I didn't really need to do that. I could just kind of bootstrap it. And that was great because sitting where I am now, I own so much more of the company than a lot of my peers because I didn't have to dilute early on. But the bad thing is it probably took me longer to get here because there really wasn't a strong forcing function to say, hey, this is my brother's money that he gave me $10,000. I should really be busting my ass today because it's his hard-earned money. Whereas it's like, oh, I've, we've kind of got this nest egg. I really, really need to work that hard. Not to say I was like a slouch not working, but I don't think the forcing function was as strong. So it took us much longer to actually raise money than most early stage companies because I didn't really need to, right? And, and and if you think about our timeline, I started in August, 2019. I just started paying myself September of this year. So I worked 13 months without a salary. And uh, you know, part of that was the fact that I bootstrapped it. The other part of it was I was going to go raise money in February of this year. I had the deck ready, had investors lined up, and we all know what happened in February of this year. And basically, when COVID hit the US, money just disappeared. There was no money to be had from the VC. Everybody was like, look, we're just trying to keep our portfolio companies alive right now. We have no idea if the world's going to fall apart. So it was really you know, a key moment for us where, what do we do? Do we shut this down? And do I 
go back and get another job? Like what's going to happen with the world? And, you know, fortunately for us, like we managed our risk. We had a couple other irons in the fire and we were able to, to get into YC. And that was kind of really the initial investment we made that spurred the rest of the investment that we've, we've gotten as a company. Kind of pause there. I, I don't know if I fully answered your question, but that's a little bit of the journey from, you know, where we started to where we are now. I think, I think that answers a question for sure. Just real quickly, maybe some people might not understand exactly what Y Combinator is. So maybe explain yeah. just the process going through that and exactly kind of the startup process through application and eventually when you graduate. So Y Combinator was really the first incubator in the startup space. So the way it works is YC, it, it, they're, they're an investor, right? So they're going to go in and say, hey, we're going to give you $150,000. We're going to take a set percentage of your company and we're going to help you grow that really, really quickly. And ideally you finish YC, which is about 10 to 12 weeks long, and you raise at a much higher multiple in terms of valuation. We've made money, at least on paper, and you're better off as a company, right? Mm -hmm. We help you provide the tools to, to build your company where you need to be. And they're very, they're very founder centric, right? So a lot of YC's criterion is around making sure that there's great founder problem fit in the sense that this is the right team to solve this problem. And our story in YC is actually pretty funny. We applied and we did the interview. It was Taylor and I were a team of two. Taylor is a good friend of mine that runs our customer success teams. And uh, YC did the interview. It was 10 minutes long. And they call us five hours later. And, and he's like, well, Josh, you know, we think, we think you're the right guy to run this company. Like, you know, inspections, you've run, you've run operations, you've got the pedigree, but you're building the software right now. And I was like, yeah, like I'm a mechanical engineer. I built the software. Like, they're like, but you suck at coding. Like, we don't think you know how to code. So you go find a technical co-founder that can do this and you're in, but like, we don't think you're very good at coding. So we're not gonna let you in, which at first I'm like, are you <laughs> kidding me? Like I was so pissed off initially. I was like, I'm from MIT. I know how to freaking code. But the reality is I'm a mechanical engineer and I went for operations and I don't know how to code. I'm an awful software engineer. And, uh, you know, within three days, I was able to convince a friend of mine uh, who actually shows you how close these environments are. The CTO and co-founder at Peach, is now our CTO co-founder, good friend of mine. Uh, so I called him up. I actually called him up to see if he knew anybody that would come do this. He's like, well, I'll do it. Uh, so within three <laughs> days, YC let us in. I added some, added a co-founder like basically on the whim and we're in. But you know, it's funny. The reason why YC does that is if you're building a software company, you again, coming back to this idea of failing fast and be able to um, identify something that the customer needs or doesn't need very quickly and be able to adjust that. If we had gotten into YC without having Denny to be able to make the adjustments we need on the software side, we would not have succeeded. We would not have been where we are today because it would have taken me weeks to do the software we needed to do, right? And when you're building a software company, you need to have somebody that can make those changes very quickly so you can capitalize on what the learnings are. So while it was a very unorthodox experience getting in, I definitely can see why they push it just based off what they've seen for startups in the past. So. Hopefully that gives a little bit of an overview of YC and uh, kind of how they think through it. Going off of that, I guess the next piece of that would be, uh, how was the experience in YC? Uh, how did you kind of manage that, especially with COVID, I assume, was going on at the time? And then how has that helped you achieve traction? Yeah, YC is great. A lot of some of the most successful tech companies in the world have gone through YC. And, and there's some things that are really good about YC and some things that aren't that good about YC. What's great about it 
is it kind of goes back to what I was doing at MIT with Bill Allad. It's this forcing function of really put a lot of rigor and structure in how you grow the business. So the way that YC is set up is every two weeks, you have a check-in with your partners. So you're assigned a partner that's, they're actually investors in your company. So they want you, like monetarily, they want you to do well because they put money in, in what you've done. Um, and it's very tactful in the sense, okay, two weeks ago, you said you're going to do this. Where are you? What happened, right? And it could be something simple because obviously, we're not, a lot of the companies aren't even cash flow, right? They're just still an idea, but you have to have something very quantitative that you want to achieve. Um, be it, you know, we're going to onboard 15 more real estate brokers to start a platform, or, you know, we're going to grow revenue from, from this to this. You have this very objective um, target. And then after two weeks, it's like, did you hit it? Okay, why didn't you hit it? What, what, what do you have to do, right? So what it, what it creates is either this opportunity to grow very quickly because you're very acute on what you're doing, or you're able to fail very quickly, right? In the sense that you know this isn't working, you're beating your head against the wall. Um, you know, for us, like our initial model was we're gonna go sell to traditional real estate agents, right? We're gonna give them this really cool platform where their clients are ready to do the inspection. They literally type in an address and they can book an inspection in a matter of seconds. We're gonna save everybody tons of hours, it's great. Um, and agents just just hated it. They're like, no, I've got my guy. Why would I not use my guy? I'm like, well, it's illegal. You can't use your guy, but you can't really do that on a sales call. Um, but we learned very quickly that wasn't the model we had to go, right? So we had to do a different way. And we did it through actually partnering with more tech forward brokerages that are more concerned. So it was about finding the right channel. And YC is great for doing that in terms of like finding success quickly and fi or finding failure quickly. So you can at least adjust to get to where you want to be. The other thing that's great about YC is it creates FOMO. Good or bad, it creates a ton of FOMO in the investor space. So you have companies that are literally an idea. They'll go out there and say they're worth $20 million and they'll raise money just because they have this brand behind them. So it's good and bad. It's, it's good because it provides a lot more leverage to founders, which for a lot of these conversations between a venture capitalist and a founder, they have zero leverage. So YC provides that, but also creates this inflation effect where you know companies are raising at higher valuations than they're worth. And sometimes that can actually screw over investors yeah. where they get caught up in it and they make bad investments. So there is good and bad that comes with that. But overall, you know, it was a fantastic experience for us. We basically grew our sales 80% over the time we're in, in YC and you know, raised a you know, pretty healthy size seed round to get us to where we need to be um, for our Series A. So you said recently you moved up from SoCal back to Seattle. <laughs> um, yeah. Maybe uh, explain why you decided to go back to Seattle and uh, what kind of drew you back to that area. Maybe I'll start with the reason why we left Seattle. So when I was leaving Flyhomes, my wife had been in REI for a couple of years, loved REI as a company, but you know really wasn't moving as fast and she wanted more responsibility. So she got this crazy job working, running operations for this fast growing startup in, in Los Angeles. I was very hesitant to the idea. I love Seattle. I am very much a flannel and coffee guy <laughs> versus beach shorts and cervezas. I am not an LA person at all. Um, and Mary, if you know Mary, she hates people, traffic, and, and pollution, which all three of those LA has in spades. Um, so I was very hesitant that she would like it, but you know, we made the decision as a family to move down there. In hindsight, it was actually a great experience. Like LA, the, at least the part we were living was beautiful. Like we're big in the outdoors. So you, there's, you got the ocean, you got the mountains, you have so much you could do. 
but we always saw it as, as kind of a temporary move. Our heart is in Seattle. Like, uh, as I mentioned, a lot of our LGO classmates are in, both her classmates and my classmates are here. My brother is here. So we've got a kind of a, a node in Seattle that we wanted to come back to, but we didn't think it happened so quickly. So Mary's job just didn't really work out the way that she was hoping. She actually wanted to move back quicker than I did, which the whole thing just kind of did a whole 180 where I didn't want to leave and now I didn't want to leave to come back. But for us as a family unit, mm-hmm. Seattle makes a lot more sense in terms of just having friends and family that can help out. I think professionally, it's easier for two LGOs that are doing two dual careers. There's tons of ops heavy companies, supply chain heavy companies, mm-hmm. which is Mary's Forte that are in Seattle. I think Seattle has one of the best tech scenes um, outside of the Bay Area, even better than the Bay Area. So it provides a lot of the overlap that we need to be able to, one, just be happy as a family, but also provide sufficient opportunities where a dual career won't be constrained by, I need to move to find a new job. There's plenty of opportunity within the Puget Sound. And, you know, it helps that it's the most beautiful place in the world, I think, and it's part of the country. So that's, that's why we like Seattle. Nice. Yeah. The Pacific War Northwest is pretty awesome. I've been there a few times. Just don't, don't tell anybody about it. We don't need anybody else here. So. <laughs> yeah. I, I can understand why you'd feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of going forward, uh, what what's the best piece of advice that you've been given and what would you give current future past LGOs uh, advice um, as to what they should do or how they should kind of approach their career or just life in general? Cause it seems like you've been very successful on all fronts. <laughs> I think being as, as thoughtful as you can be in terms of what you want to do. And I, and I don't mean you need to have a detailed document on what I'm going to do for this part of my, my career and what, I, what, what exactly I want to accomplish, but having a true heart to heart on like what, what success looks like for you and feel comfortable if that answer is outside the norms. I've got good friends of mine in LGO that are getting to the point of their career now where it's like, you know what, I don't want to go for that executive job. You know, I'm happy working 45 hours a week, making a very good salary and having a quality of life that allows me to do much more than I want to do outside of work. And I, I don't say that you should settle for less. That's exactly the opposite of what I'm trying to, mm-hmm. trying to say, but don't feel like you should be pressured to fit the norm of what an LGO might do. I mean, look at me, for example, like I very much outside the norm of what a lot of LGOs do. And, you know, I'm, I'm doing what I love and I'm not working a lot of hours, but, you know, I'm, I'm probably working more than most LGOs because I'm building a company, but I love what I'm doing, right? And when you are doing things that you love what you do, it's 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 much easier to one, not be stressed about the amount of time you're putting in, but two, actually, it actually works the opposite way where you actually can put less time into it because you're so much more impactful. I'm probably doing 60 hours a week with my company. I was doing 80 to 90 hours a week at Fly Homes and I had half the output in terms of what I got done. And a large proponent of that is is I'm just, I love what I'm doing. Like I have complete control of whatever I'm doing and and I'm fulfilled with what I'm doing every single day. And I'm just reflective in my output. Um, If you speak to to Mary, my wife, like she's adamant on 40 hours. Like she will not do more than, than 40 hours. If you've met Mary as a person, you'll, you'll know why, because she's tons of energy. Like she will, she will do more in 40 hours than most will do in two weeks. So it, it all comes down to, to, to mindset and how you approach it. But, you know, I think being very truthful to yourself and not being pressured into to what is the norm is what's going to give you long-term success, both in your career, but also life. And I think with that, the last thing that uh, I'll have to mention for folks that are trying to manage this, this dual career Probably the best piece of advice that I've ever received on it actually came from another LGO, Denise Johnson, who's at Caterpillar and is a great example of an LGO. She gave the advice to Mary and I. It's like 
because her, she's in the same situation, right? Her, her husband has a um, pretty fulfilling career. And her advice was in the form of analogy. She said, think of it like a dance, right? Sometimes you take a step back, which Mary moving to Boston, leaving a very good job at Caterpillar to go to Boston was a step back for her. But then sometimes I take a step back, me turning down every damn job I got at LGO to move to Seattle because that's where she wanted to be was a step back. But the important thing is you do it together. You stay as one unit, right? And as long as you keep that focus, everything works out, which, you know, knock on wood, everything seems to be working out for us. This has been Season 3, Episode 2 of the LGO Playbook Podcast. I've been your host, Stephen Windorf. Thank you. Goodbye.